we have come to the end of Canto 16 of Inferno, and I have to do something. I have to lay my cards on the table. <laughs> At least a lot of them. Maybe not every trump in my hand, but a lot of them. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually slow walk through Dante's masterwork, comedy. But in this episode, far down in Inferno, right toward the middle, I feel I need to stop. So there's no passage in this podcast. Instead, there's a whole discussion about the way I read comedy. And it seems important because I have had some amazing conversations in emails, in DMs, on Instagram, and on Twitter about the previous episodes in Canto 16. And I thought, shoot, I should just clarify it all. So here I am. What I want to talk about is how comedy gets written. <laughs> now, this is silly because, of course, I am making suppositions right and left. And I want to confess to that right up front. I do not want to appear that I have a final answer. But this is some way in which I read the entire work of comedy. Dante is a poet of shall we say, middling efforts before comedy. It's not that the Vita Nuova, the new life, isn't a grand book in its own way. It's not that the scenes with Beatrice aren't weird and strange and Freudian, <laughs> modern and sexual and eroticized and all that kind of stuff. It's not that any of that doesn't go on. It's not the question of substitution of feminine figures in Vita Nuova. Those are all fascinating ideas. But honestly, it's not going to be a work that lasts forever. It is, oh gosh, don't come at me, Dantistas. It is no Chrétien de Troyes and the whole Arthurian romance cycle. Dante himself wants to write something that will last, something that will make his name. And so he starts out writing comedy. How do I know this? How do I know that he wants to write something that will last a Virgil. To pick Virgil as his guide will automatically elevate the very nature of the work in Dante's world. To suddenly have Virgil as a character in my own work encodes my own work with importance. Secondly, Beatrice promises Virgil fame in heaven, or at least favor in heaven. And B, C, what is this, C, three? I guess three. <laughs> Three, the classical poets truly get preferential treatment in limbo. They do. They live in a place with green grass and flowing clean water. This, it strikes me, is the heart of the writing of Inferno as it begins. The desire to write something that will last. That is fame. Something that will outlast my own death or the poet's own death. Something that will guarantee an immortality on this plane of existence beyond my own mortality, even though I'm writing about the afterlife. And inside of this desire to write something that lasts, there is a capacious vision there's discussions of courtly love, of medieval poetics. There's con condemnations of Florence. Let's, let's just say that there is a capacious vision of writing the afterlife in a way that will cause me to be remembered, putting clerics amongst the avaricious and the prodigal. There are ways that I'm going to get my name remembered, finding the old enemy, Ferenata, and finally having some kind of 
conversation with him that's not just some kind of macho match between egos. That strikes me as all part of this need to write something that will last. And listen, every writer has this motivation. Henry... (laughs) Always comes back to Henry James, doesn't it? Henry James, George Eliot, they all have this, you know, I mean, J.D. Robb, they all have this motivation to find something that will last in some specific way, whether it be a best-selling writer like Sarah Strohmeyer or a very high-end literary artist like Haruki Murakami. There is this desire to find something that will outlast you, and it is certainly Dante's motivation. At least it strikes me in the early parts of comedy. And this all comes to a head with Brunetto Latini and the three Gelf heroes, which are in technically the ring of homosexuality amongst the violent. And there are ways that Dante tries to tie them. And I tried to argue about Brunetto and how his own work invokes the friendship amongst men early on. And maybe there's a way in which the Gelf heroes are involved in heterosexual practices that are non-conforming. But these seem almost tacked on bits of the text because the text is about really how to get your name to last, whether it be historically or literarily, whether it be through your actions in politics or through your actions on the page. It all is circling around fame. And even those Gelfiores at the end, you know, make us the promise that we'll be remembered. This becomes slowly, through the cantos we've been doing, the height of the insecurity of writing under this strategy. Listen, you eventually reach the point in which you think, wait a minute, what I'm writing is not necessarily about overcoming my own mortality. This is true for any artist. This was true for me when I wrote my memoir that was just published, bookmarked, how the great works of Western literature up my life. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes & Noble. You can find it in all kinds of places. Listen, this was true when I was writing that. At first, I thought I was writing something that was clever and funny and that would catch, you know, a kind of readership behind it that would hold itself together. And I slowly, over the process of, it took me four years to write the book, over the process of writing the book, I slowly had to refigure out why I was writing it. And I think that's what's happening with Dante. He The poet is reaching the limits of writing for fame alone. And in reaching the limits with Brunetto Latini and the Gelf heroes of writing to be remembered, how do I say this? The text heightens its insecurities. And thus we get the joking around with fraud and swearing on your comedy that you actually saw what you're about to see. This, it strikes me, is our high point. We have reached a point in which the writer can no longer justify what he's writing just as an imaginative act that will get him remembered. And the remainder of Inferno, and now I'm going to pass on to places that we haven't gotten to yet, the remainder of Inferno is about rejecting various methods for writing comedy. 
In fact, when we get down to the thieves, we're going to find out that there's a way in which the poet is rejecting just copying your elders. Yes, that is one of the ways you can write to write uh, to get a text that will last. But in the end, so what? So you outdo Ovid. So you outdo the metamorphoses. So what? What does it add up to? When we're going to get down to Ulysses, hmm, there's a motivation to dare the horizon of the acceptable, to dare to sail beyond it. We're going to find out that that's not necessarily the right motivation. In fact, if you get on down, we're going to find out that we're going to have modern poets in the new style, troubadours. And what are they doing? They're carrying around their own head. You can lose your own head in trying to write in the vernacular to be remembered. And ultimately, finally, you're going to reach a point where, well, it seems like what happens is that those who write surely for fame and based on classical models for Dante and all that just eat each other's brains out. But that's a long way to come down Inferno. And it strikes me that Inferno is now going to start exploring from the poet various ways to write Inferno without relying on models of the past and without relying on fame as the primary motivation. I read Inferno as the finding of the voice, the finding of the voice that will create the poem that is not necessarily a tour de force, although of course comedy is a tour de force, but that's not the motivation for writing it is to write a tour de force. Rather, the motivation is to write something else. And this is it. It's to write out the terms of your own salvation. It is to write out the terms of your own redemption. Oh, man, I can't help but think about my own memoir again. But it is exactly this notion that ultimately what I'm writing is the way I'm going to find my way out of my despair. It is that motivation that becomes central to the writing of comedy. I read Purgatorio. I realize we're a long way from Purgatorio. But I read Purgatorio as a meta-commentary on Inferno. What is this voice I found after fame? What is this voice that I found that doesn't write solely from fame's reasons? We're going to find out characters who drop hints about this, who say things like, hmm, gosh, it used to all be about Chimabue, but now it's all about Giotto. Because if you're if you're creating art just to be remembered, you're going to just be ground up in the wheels of forgetfulness. <laughs> and Purgatorio is structured in the way that Inferno should have been structured. It's structured on the seven deadly sins, the way we started down Inferno and then got distracted and finally got pushed off into discussions of fame, how to be remembered, follow your star, <laughs> recall us back up on earth. But wait a minute, that's not enough to hold the text together. Well, what is enough to hold the text together? Mm. That answer is found throughout the Purgatorio. And what then is the Paradiso? Well, the Paradiso is what you write once you've discovered the reason 
that you write. And Dante in Paradiso will finally come to terms with working out his own salvation. And part of working out his own salvation is having a capacious encyclopedic understanding of the cosmos itself. And ultimately, that's what he wants. Ultimately, he comes around from writing a text that will be remembered to writing a text that attempts to sum up knowledge itself, and in so doing, find the own his own means for his own salvation, and to find, and we're going to get to this, to find pleasure. Because ultimately, the source of writing is the same as the source for God, which is the same as the source for Beatrice. It's pleasure. It's finding this spot that is, well, to use a giant modern word, almost orgasmic. It is finding that spot of pleasure in the creative act that becomes the rationale for creating the very thing you're making. Surely any artist, whether you be a cabinet maker, whether you be a kitchen designer, whether you be a painter, whether you be a poet, whether you be any kind of artistic creation, surely you know that it reaches the point in which the motivation is pleasure. I am a gardener. Our home is now surrounded by gardens. Really, honestly, we live very rurally. Bruce and I do in rural New England. We have about 10 acres. And I would say, oh, we're coming up on an acre and a half of it is gardened. And I don't mean vegetable gardens. I mean decorative flower gardens, and I am insane about them. And I used to think it I had all kinds of motivations. Oh, it enhanced the value of the house. Oh, it made the house so much nicer to see. Oh, it did this. Oh, it did that. Right? I had all these motivations for why I was doing this and why I was digging out more and more yard every year and buying more and more plants and planting more and more things. And then I thought, oh, it's about trying to find the right aesthetic balance. And then for a while, I was like, no, it's about wildness, and I want to overplant so everything is just stocked full and wild you know what i finally come to the realization no it's not it's about the sheer pleasure of doing it it's about the sheer pleasure of being out there digging in the dirt cleaning out the gardens which is what i'm coming to in the fall cleaning out the gardens watching them grow in the spring my favorite point i always say in new england we get our crocuses maybe last week of april and the hostas start poking up out of the ground about the second week of may and i've always said that that's my favorite moment when everything is potential because that is when i can see the pleasure of growth happening in the plants and i can feel the new life starting and it's all about finding that well, gosh, there's that word, that orgasmic spot of pleasure in which you see it happening and you take so much joy in it. That's where we're getting to in comedy. That's laying my cards on the table. That's telling you what I think comedy is about and how it should be read. I'm not playing my ace trump. There are many, many more ways that comedy should be read besides this 700 years of commentary. There are hundreds of different ways, but I wanted to put all these cards at least down on the table before we move on to Canto 17 because it just seems to me important to say, listen, this is ultimately how I read comedy. The search for fame, 
the quibble about fame, the insecurity that fame causes, the insecurity that ruptures the text, the now attempt to find different ways to write comedy that you reject because none of them seem satisfying, finally to come out with a vision of comedy in which you realize exactly what you're doing. We're going to get to that at the end of Inferno then writing a meta-commentary on Inferno, on the ways to actually write this thing, and then finally writing the poem you wanted to write, which is Paradiso, which is the hardest part, the most opaque part, the most Dante-centric part of the whole poem. To get all the way to Paradiso, you're going to have to subscribe. You're going to have to stay tuned. We're a long way from Paradiso. This podcast has been going on for one year, and we are almost at the middle point of Inferno. We are slow walking, but that's how it's going to go, and we're going to keep slow walking for a long time, as long as I can keep up with this. No, I do not accept sponsorships. I do this for, here it comes, ready, pleasure. I hope you take pleasure in it, too. Come back next time. Canto 17 and the descent to the eighth circle of hell. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.